Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right, so I'm actually pretty excited about these ones because um, whenever I see a topic that you review, that is something that I've been interested in, I thought I knew a good amount about, or I had a, or I just had a, a really opinion. I, I already had a bias towards a, a one side. I'm always curious to see what you find to see if it supports me or if it crushes me. <laughs> so, um, which is the, the NSAIDs one is the one that I'm really interested in, which is the one we'll get into first. Um, but they're both really good and, and the blog did really well. So for anybody listening to this, if you haven't checked out the blog yet, you can, you can check this podcast out in writing form with the graphs and everything included on the website. And I'll link that in the description, but um, Brandon, go ahead and take it away and, and dive into the first study for us. Yeah. So the first one is on NSAIDs and specifically ibuprofen. Um, and I've been following this research for, I don't know, a decade or so. And it's kind of like hit or miss on what happens. Um, but there, before this study, and it's a little bit older, but before this study, there were no like long-term outcomes, right? And that's what we generally care about. Um, so what they did in this study specifically was they had about 20 people, mostly males, but they, there were some females in there. And they were, you know, 25-ish uh, trained people, which is really important too. A lot of the previous studies were on untrained people, and we know there are differences there, uh, especially when it comes to DOMS and like it, muscle protein synthesis and stuff. Um, but they gave them in a double-blind manner. So researchers don't know, participants don't know, uh, if they're getting placebo or ibuprofen. And they gave them two pills that were 200 milligrams, so like one in the morning and one in the evening. So that's 400 milligrams total. And they did, this is the fun part, they did arms for six weeks and they did it five days a week. So they basically did a ton of bicep curls. Um, and the, the training protocol- yeah, right. <laughs> it's like anything. There's a couple big studies with arms, and I'm like, this is so much better than doing like legs. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the actual training session wasn't that hard. Uh, it was just three sets of eight to ten, so like seventy percent one RM, and then three sets of four to six at one hundred percent of uh, their max. So like a, with a three second eccentric. So just eccentrics, right? Uh, we use those to get stronger a lot, um, and they're not—they're not terrible. I, this this protocol would probably give me elbow tendonitis. It definitely would. Um, and they had kind of short rest intervals between um, exercises, so it was only a minute. But again, arms—they recover pretty fast. Like a minute's not too bad. Okay, so you got your two groups: placebo or ibuprofen. Six weeks of arms. What happens? Well. When they compared the two groups, both of them gained about 25% in their 1RM of bicep curl. Uh, so no differences there on strength. And that's not surprising given the literature. Um, 
you know, it kind of makes sense that they would both get stronger. It would have to be a huge effect for the ibuprofen group to not get stronger. Um, then they looked at muscle soreness, which is probably one of the more interesting components because I, when I reach for ibuprofen, it's usually for like joint soreness or just stiffness or aches or whatever, not necessarily for DOMS. Um, but they found that the placebo didn't have an effect at all uh, when you compared it to ibuprofen, like, or sorry, the other way around, ibuprofen to a placebo. So it didn't help with muscle soreness. And this is just like a soreness scale. Like they'll touch your bicep and be like, how sore are you on a scale of one to 10 type thing, or 20 to 20. So no differences there. And that was kind of surprising. Uh, and the most important one, you know, for people who like looking good, uh, muscle size, right? So they found no differences between the groups there either. And both groups increased uh, bicep thickness by 8%, uh, which is a good amount considering that was only six weeks. Like independent of the treatments, like 8% bicep size in six weeks, that's, that's pretty good size, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So to take all that home, basically giving, low, we'll call this low dose, low dose ibuprofen for six weeks in the arm, um, you know, doing an arm protocol didn't really interfere with any strength or muscle gains. So that's kind of the, the take home of the study. Was there a study not too long ago? I feel like I saw Dr. Andy Galpin talking about this, but I may be mistaken, that uh, kind of did the same thing, but with ice baths? I think, yeah. And, and ice baths are definitely something I'm going to cover in the future. I'm just like working up to it because there's been a string yeah. of like five studies published in the past two or three months, which makes her for a really good series and kind of a build up. Um, and part of the study that I'm thinking about, I, I believe they alluded to hypertrophic response was lower when using the ice baths. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's where the data is trending right now. It's like not good for hypertrophy. So the way I always looked at ibuprofen or really any anti-inflammation tool or supplement or anything is keeping it away from training because my main goal is to build muscle. But if I had somebody doing CrossFit and they had uh, a competition where they had a session in the morning, session at night, I'm like, take ibuprofen and jump in an ice bath in between those because it's not going to limit your strength. If anything, it's going to help because you're going to recover faster and it's going to help that inflammation before your next event, which is only hours away. But if I'm trying to build muscle and my next session is tomorrow, to me, it makes more sense to just deal with it, let my body naturally adapt to it. And, and I assumed that ibuprofen was the same exact way as the ice bath. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of thought that too until I saw this study. And I, I don't know that most people would reach for ibuprofen because of like DOMS or a normal like workout like this. But in the realm of CrossFit, like that does happen. Or like if you're just training for any event, like pick a like runners, whatever, you, you generally have this like pain threshold where you're like, okay, if I can get through this. I'll just take some ibuprofen for a couple weeks or a couple days or whatever and get through it. Then I'm good to go. Yeah. So that that is probably more standard, but nobody's done any studies on that yet. So I don't know basically how that would affect anything. Um, the closest, I'm trying to think the closest to that. There was a study, there was a study with ibuprofen and people who ran a marathon. So they gave it to them like after marathon, because that would definitely be a time you would probably take it. Um, and it followed up later and there are some um, satellite cell effects, which could translate to, you know, muscle adaptations later, uh, showing that 
ibuprofen stops the satellite cells from activating and recovering. So it's like inhibiting your recovery mm. long term. Um, but this this idea or the the idea of ibuprofen being bad comes from a couple of studies, probably like twenty years ago now, um, where they gave it and then they measured muscle protein synthesis and then they said, "Hey, look, muscle protein synthesis is down." So that means. And they didn't say this, but this is what people took from it. Uh, that means that you're not going to grow muscle as well if you take ibuprofen. The only problem with a lot of these studies is that they give like 1,200 milligrams, which is like the most you're supposed to have in 24 hours. And that I don't. I'd be curious just to see how much how much ibuprofen do you take when you normally take it, like just for for fun. Yeah. Uh, if I'm taking ibuprofen, it's usually 400 or 600 milligrams, and and 400 is the max on the bottle because it's a 200 milligram pill and it says two at most and I'll take three, but that's like, I'm feeling <laughs> <Yeah>. risky. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. Like I'll usually take 400 mix. That's, that's a, I, I feel like that's a standard extra strength, right? Yeah. You get the bottle. It's like, Oh, this, this is good. This picks me up, but you don't take it like twice a day. You just take it once. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to translate some of this stuff, but I wanted to look into it. Mostly this one, these two studies are really for my self-interest and less other people like interests, uh, but also something we can reference in the future. Right. Yeah. Luckily, uh, luckily a lot of our listeners have the same interests as us. So yeah, it works yeah. out. Um, one, one thing that kind of comes to mind that I would want to ask is, uh, especially for the listeners to better understand is like, what is the inflammatory response or effect on the muscle when you train like what what is actually going on from an inflammatory level because depending on the severity i gotta imagine it, it depends on what you're doing you know a squat with a bar on your back might create more systemic inflammation than a bicep curl um so would this translate to those things or does it change depending on what we're doing and the, the degree of that inflammation because running a marathon there's probably way more inflammation that's a long duration race so that that transfer of the satellite cell issue happening is that because of the degree of of what you're doing to an extent does that make sense yeah yeah and and it's a good it's a good question because it there's not a very they're very good answer so i can i can kind of speculate a bit um so we need inflammation to adapt like straight up if you block it you just you don't adapt and bad things happen but we don't want to block all of it or, you know, again, bad things happen. So we have to figure out how much do we need to stop inflammation to really benefit whatever we're trying to do. And, you know, that depends on the person, of course, but I don't think that we have a great answer. I do like totally agree with the, the certain things cause way more inflammation than others. Like this, some of these, uh, muscle damage protocols, like you're going to get way more damage with that than like you are in a normal session. Um, but there's also something else to consider. And that is, so we have systemic inflammation, like you said, a marathon would, would probably increase your systemic inflammation, but then we have muscle specific inflammation and actually older, so older people who train, they actually have this and people who have a lot of just muscle specific inflammation don't respond as well to training. So I did a study about that a couple of years ago. But in terms of like, you know, what, how much inflammation do we want to block or how much even really exists? It's, it's really hard to give a good answer um, on that. Because it's, it's like, I could tell you, you know, TNF alpha, right? It's 
cytokine inflammation increases fivefold, right? But that doesn't really like mean anything and we can't really even measure it. So I think the, the hard part is getting stuff that you can actually measure like as a coach or as an athlete and using that to guide what you're doing uh, instead of using, you know, how you feel necessarily. Um, but we don't, we don't have any of that data. So science continues. <laughs> Uh, I think speculating in general is totally fine for us, but uh, yeah. something that like I would speculate yeah. is, and this this is kind of broish, but the way I look at it is like you know, speaking of adaptation, you do hard things, you harden up, right, and then you get better at them because you can handle more, and I I think that applies to everything. But I look at like this is the same thing with muscle damage. Like, Oh, actually muscle damage doesn't really matter that much for muscle growth. We don't think that it's like, it's just a byproduct of what you're doing, but I always go back to the thought of, okay, well old school bodybuilders who are jacked or, or the guys that are just still in the gym, just grind away that you, that you can't explain why they're so jacked. Like they swear by muscle damage. Why is that? Well, they're pushing themselves hard enough to create muscle damage, but it's the effort to get there that causes the growth. So you should still probably see some soreness every once in a while. You know, if you're never sore at all, probably not a good thing. Um, another thing, bodybuilders and people like that, they don't drown in ibuprofen to help with their soreness. Like they just deal with it. So to me, I'm like, I watch some of those things and, and, and I follow suit, you know, and sometimes that helps too for people. Even like, I even talked to people about this with like uh, low carb dieting. I'm like, who's the best at getting extremely lean bodybuilders. Okay. Do any of them really follow low carb diets? <laughs> I mean, at the end, but at the end, it's just a low everything. Everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that doesn't even count. But like, if you look at most bodybuilders, they actually follow a lower fat diet, if anything. Um, and we know that there's some science behind that, but uh, I do think it's at times it's, it's fine to speculate towards what you see and, and just kind of like your intuition. Cause, cause I've told people like, Hey, if you can avoid taking ibuprofen after a session, or I've even, and this might be wrong so you can correct me but i've even said like hey let's like let's not take like if you train at six in the morning i don't want you taking your fish oil and antioxidants and all these vitamins and minerals right before your training save them for night when it's way away from your training you still get them in every day but fish oil is another one of those anti-inflammatories and to me i'm like let's just keep it away from the training window yeah yeah and i i don't think there's any issue with that um going back to your like embracing the grind thing that's the uh, I mean, that is how you have to like get bigger eventually or get better at that. Like, you know, once you reach a certain level, you just have to push and it sucks. Yeah. Um, so I, I, there's a line that you try not to cross. Right. And that's usually right before you get injured. You know, that line you're like, oh, I don't know. Let me stick my toe over there. No, maybe. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, we went too far. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yep. So. I just, uh, I just recently did that and I hurt my back and it was the first time I'd taken ibuprofen in a while. And actually, uh, they were prescription grade ibuprofens and they were 600 milligrams. So going back to like dosage, doctors prescribe one pill at 600 milligrams and that's like the, you got to get over the counter shit. So 1200 is a lot in one sitting. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I generally tell people like when they ask, I'm like, so, I mean, if you want to take it occasionally, it's fine. Just don't like be the person who's taking an ibuprofen every single day. That's probably not, not yeah. good for you. Yeah. 
Um, related to ibuprofen, not related to muscle, uh, gut health, is there any evidence to show that ibuprofen is, is negative on the liver, on the gut or anything like that? Cause I've, I've heard that as well as like, uh, you know, taking all that shit is not good on your gut. And I've even had like, like my dad has gone through hip surgery and I know when he takes pain meds, his gut gets all fucked up and he tries to avoid it because of that. Yeah. So that is one of the biggest, um, side effects and like adverse events to taking ibuprofen is, is just gastrointestinal pain, discomfort. I mean, it's not good on your gut, especially if you're taking large doses, dosages for long periods. Um, in terms of gut health, I, you may have stumped me or there might not be any research. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if anybody's looked at, you know, people taking ibuprofen and how it changes their, their gut microbiota. That would be cool. That'd be a good study. Man. I'm writing that down done that yet i feel like they're, they're trying to do everything with gut health and and i mean there's a lot on artificial sweeteners and stuff like that but um it'd be an interesting interesting thing and again that kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier is like just listening to your body and, and being intuitive you know like if you are relying on ibuprofen and your gut is a mess then put two and two together <laughs> yeah yeah for sure i actually i just got results back from a study on a microbiome study with a ketone ester and it not, like nothing changed. And I was like, wait, what? They're like, no, there's no differences. There's not, nothing changed in the gut from taking a ketone ester. I'm like, uh, okay, I don't believe you, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> why, why is that for the people listening? Explain that and explain um, what a keto ester is. So a ketone ester is uh, kind of one of the um, supplements. So ketones are kind of being pushed as some kind of performance enhancement. Uh, now, there's a ton of studies that basically say they don't, uh, except in like these super elite athletes who are using them on the Tour de France. Um, and so I just had a very simple question. Like, and the question was, does giving someone ketone esters change the makeup, like their, their bugs in their gut, right? And it turns out it doesn't. Um, even if you do it for like, six to eight weeks. So yeah, it's kind of one of those things in science where you're like, no, there's that, that ketone is definitely doing something. And then, and then you, you kind of come back, you're like, yeah, I guess not. Why, why do you find it hard to believe that it didn't create any result? Um, because a lot of, almost everything you do changes the gut a little bit. Mm. Um, and I just like, I have, I don't know. I just had a feeling. It's just one of those science feelings, man. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and then also there's, if there's not 10 studies on it, then we don't, we don't really know yet. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot to be done. Um, and, and it's actually, I was thinking about this when I was uh, getting this blog up on the website. If, when I read your research roundups, when I read weightology, when I read mass, anything, it's, uh, you know, like what's next is kind of the question. Like, what do we get? almost every single time it's there's a request for more research to be done <laughs> it's like well Gotta, we still we need more research but what i think is or like i'd really like to see a study like this you know and it's and it's always like we need more we need more evidence yeah there was so i was talking to some other researchers and there was this like idea right this grand idea where like if we all picked one topic right if we always if we all picked like volume and hypertrophy and just did studies on that like 20 to 50 researchers for like two years or three years, we could have not a finite answer, but like the closest thing we could get to an answer. 
uh, and everybody kind of looked at me and was like, what? No. <laughs> like, but we can answer questions that way. <laughs> They're like, no, it doesn't. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Pipe dream. Yeah, that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, let's dive into number two, which I actually think is, uh, this kind of relates to, I believe, something that you were talking to the team about on one of the educational uh, prezos and something I asked you to kind of dig into a while back based on something I read out of uh, Thought Lost Forever. The, mm -hmm. the book is that yeah correct? yeah yeah it is and this is so they lane and oh man I forgot who the other author is they definitely re reference this study and a couple other ones um okay. but i had not i have a i have a colleague there really close friend who does fat cell biology and so we worked in the like, same lab for a little bit and we were always pinging ideas because like fat cells are not super like well studied and they're like is no one studying them in exercise science and like with exercise so i just like when you read that literature you don't see it very often um and the reason is i'll tell you a story at the end of all this um but the reason is fat biopsies and they suck but this study had five six hundred people five seven hundred people somewhere in that realm big big study and it was a cross-sectional study so that means you have all of your data from one time point Right, so you like you come in, you get something done on a whole bunch of people, and then you compare it. You don't follow them over a certain period. You just got one time point. But with that, you can do a lot of correlations. You can split up your data in different ways. You know, maybe you have some lean people and obese people, and you want to look at one of the things you measured. So that's kind of what the study did. Uh, but they, I mean, so this study also combined data from a bunch of other studies that this research group has done. And we call that a secondary analysis, which is totally fine. It's usually when people have questions and they're like, well, we have this data. Let's see if we can answer the question we have with the data. And the question was, uh, do people have more fat hypertrophy or fat hyperplasia when they're lean or obese, right? So when, you're, when your fat cells Kind of, do they expand or do they multiply and, and does it matter? And so they created some formulas for body fat and then they some, created some other formulas for um, to categorize the fat cells as having hyperplasia or hypertrophy. And then they, they did their analysis. And what they found was there's this kind of like curvilinear response where the more fat you had, the more fat cells you had up to a point, and then it kind of leveled off. But if you think about that um, in terms of people, right, you kind of get people who level off at a certain amount of fat mass. Like you look around the general population, like, yes, there's a lot of variability, and they had a lot of variability in the study, but, you know, there's more kind of overweight and slightly obese people than there are like super obese people. And if going back to the hyperplasia or hypertrophy component, so they, they have all this data and they said, well, if you're above this line, you have the hyperplasia. If you're below this line, you have hypertrophy. And so then they looked at men and women and they didn't notice any differences like between hyperplasia and hypertrophy. So it's okay. Well, there's no sex effect or gender effect. Uh, and then they kind of looked and said, well, maybe if people are obese, they have more hypertrophy or maybe they have more hyperplasia. I don't know which, which happens. And from their data, it didn't matter if you're obese or not. You had the, 
a very, very similar amount of hyperplasia and hypertrophy. So this tells us basically, you know, as you're getting bigger or fatter, um, like technically fat mass is expanding, you're creating more fat cells up to a point, and then they're just getting bigger and you're not creating more. Um, and the application of that is, okay, well, can we stop it? Does it matter? Um, and this is just that there's no difference and it happens to everybody and we can't control it. That's all this paper is really saying. Um, so this is kind of like a characterization of fat cells. And then there's a couple like gyms in there, uh, like fat cell turnover and stuff. But ultimately, they didn't really find any, any differences between the, the fat cell in leaner obese people or there's not really any difference if you classify it as hyperplasia or hypertrophy. So um, I don't know that we can say it's good to create more fat cells or create bigger fat cells. Uh, if we relate this to other literature, bigger fat cells are generally worse. So they are more promoting of inflammation and other kind of insulin resistance problems. So that's kind of the sum of this study for, for now. Would it be of concern if, you know, if you are multiplying fat cells, then you have more of an opportunity to expand those fat cells and then it becomes a real issue? Because in my mind, the way it works is like, I understand a bigger fat cell might be cause more health issues, but the more fat cells we have, it could be potentially harder to lose weight because of that. Would that be accurate? Yeah. So the problem with making more fat cells is I won't say they never go away, but they pretty much never go away. And that's why fat loss is so difficult is because these fat cells are putting off uh, adipokines, which are just cytokines from fat cells. Uh, and they're telling your body different things. And if you can never remove that signal, right, that's probably bad. Um, even this was kind of a cool study. Even if you get liposuction, you're not taking out like just fat cells. You're taking out a mix of like big and little fat cells. So you don't actually reduce your fat cell number that much, which is ridiculous. Um, let's see. The, the other thing that I, I touched on in the blog, and I think this we, we could probably relate to, I don't know if you're, you're a fat kid, but I was definitely a fat kid. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> is that when, when you're, when you're growing up, essentially, that's when you see kind of the most fat cell expansion. I mean, which makes sense to a point, like 12 or 13, sure, you need fat. Um, but then it levels off like at 20 to 25, your fat cell number, right? So if you can, in that gap, like maybe the later stages between like 20 and 25, kind of lower that ceiling and not get overweight, or not be overweight as a kid, and then you're overweight as a teenager, and then you're overweight as an adult, right? If you can kind of bring those cell numbers down over the long term of your life, it's probably gonna be better, um, which is why, partly why we have like an OBC epidemic. That makes a lot of sense as to why like, people ask all the time, like, why is the last five pounds so hard to lose? It's probably because of this exact thing, right? That's, that's where, it, it, especially if you're 
I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's more difficult to lose that last five pounds, quote unquote, for those who have lost weight multiple times, right? They've lost weight, gained some back, lost weight, gained some back. And, and, and this is kind of what the concept of the book was talking about. Every time you regain that weight, you're multiplying fat cells and you're giving them an opportunity to grow. So now every time you come back to the diet, it becomes more difficult. Is that correct? Yes. So we don't know for sure that you're like multiplying fat cells, but they're getting like bigger again. And then once they reach a point, they'll probably multiply a little bit too. Um, that all kind of depends on how fat you are, how much weight you have, but yeah, I mean, it's not good to weight cycle. Right. And that's what a lot of people do is now for a bodybuilder, you have to weight cycle. So my question there would be, is this just more evidence to show like, Hey, maybe a slightly leaner gaining phase would be more helpful. Like in, by that, I mean, Hey guys, you're not going to stay shredded while you try to gain muscle, but like not doing a dreamer bulk, which we've all done. Yes. I, I think if anything in the past six months I've learned, it's that you should not, you should never do a dreamer bulk. You should not gain at a very quick rate. Like, because you're gonna like you're gonna put on fat cells, right? And once you have them, you can't really get rid of them. So why take someone lean, especially if you're like lean at baseline, like if you're, you know, kind of like you are normally, and then get them fat, and then get them lean again. Like it, it's just you're like setting them up for failure. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. I wish I could like shout that from the mountaintops. They're like, I please would... don't bulk fast. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun, but don't do it. It's it, it's the hard part for people is really just like the commitment you know like if you look at the people who do it the right way it's like hey they spent eight months gaining and people are like wait i have to eat in a surplus and train really hard for eight months straight consistently and it's like bingo i mean i was talking to somebody about this the other day like uh because they were about them they've trained the same amount of time i have but 10 years every single week i mean there's obviously times where i went on vacation or i got hurt or whatever but every week for 10 years is a long fucking time. I'm not that big. But um, my point being is like, you have, you just, you got to spend time. Like there's just no way around, especially if you're natural. Um, And I would say this is actually just an observation, but it would, it would line up with this and make sense. Uh, There's a thing inside of bodybuilding, like natural bodybuilding where like older competitors get more conditioned. Like they just tend to be more conditioned. It's like almost like you age like fine wine, right? Like you just get better. But I think uh, this, if you look at those people who you can use as examples, they don't really get fat in the off season. They tend to stay pretty lean and they get to a point and I think they do it because, well, now I'm 45, so I can't really build much muscle. So I'm just going to stay leaner and just focus on strength in the off season. And then it'll be an easier cut going to prep. But what they're probably doing is limiting this from happening and causing more fat accumulation, which is probably accurate too, because they're not obviously not going to build as much muscle being over 40 i think it slows down at like 30 right building muscle i mean it's a i would say it's more like 40 there there's a a plateau we'll call it around 40 and i mean sure like if you had a couple years where like you weren't working out as much or like you had kids or you just got distracted right you could probably like dip down a little bit and then come back up um but you're not like putting on 10 pounds of muscle above the age of like 40 without some help uh Unless you have just not been training right, like straight, like, yeah. But if you've been doing everything right for 10, 15 years, you're probably pretty maxed out. The only time I've seen some, a client make a pretty good leap in muscle growth and they were in their forties 
Um, and this was after working with them for almost a year of, of like really slow progress and not really getting anywhere. Um, not, I shouldn't say not getting anywhere, but we're more focused on staying lean and health and all that stuff. Um, he had extremely low testosterone levels and they were trying to do all these natural things to help. Um, and his doctor finally prescribed him just TRT mm. and that's helped significantly. And it was one of those things where it's like, he's not like, he doesn't look like Mr. Olympia. So you wouldn't walk up to that guy and be like, you're taking testosterone, <laughs> <laughs> but it definitely gave him the little nudge to be like, all right, let's build some muscle again. Cause you're putting a lot of work in the gym and you know, we need some help. So, um, I feel like that's one caveat that would be out there. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Like I have one of my friends is a, he's a PA. And so he's like a family medicine guy. And, um, he's like, he comes to me, he was visiting last week. He's like, Brandon, you will not believe how many TRT prescriptions I give out. He's like all those dudes in the gym that were like 40, like they're all on TRT. I'm like, well, do you blame them? He's like, no, not really. Their testosterone was low. I was like, well, it sounds like they're using it right then. Yeah. <laughs> they're like jacked. <laughs> Shit. I'll, t- I'll tell you, uh, I'll be the first to admit when I'm in my forties or fifties or whenever I feel like I'm tapped out. And if, if the, the blood work does not show a number I like, I'm going to do it. Why not? I mean, it's not, I think, I think where uh, it gets misconstrued and this is obviously going way off topic, but I was talking to uh, somebody about this recently too, because they were asking questions like, isn't that steroids though? And I was like, steroids is like a big umbrella of a whole bunch of shit like you got to go breaking bad in order to do it properly where you're you're it's a concoction you know you, you have a little bit of growth a little bit of insulin a little bit of trend a little bit of testosterone a little bit of uh, whatever and, and you're doing all these things in sync at certain levels which makes it honestly that's the scariest part to me it's like i'm too afraid to mess any of that up to even try to to be taking that um whereas trt is it's literally just testosterone you know and i yeah yeah it's not much no and and unfortunately the way human society lives today testosterone's at an all-time low for most people it's it is it's it's scary everything stress artificial light the way we eat Mm -hmm. bad and i think it's funny because like uh even myself i get i get blood work done like usually at least once a year sometimes twice and uh I was, I was in range, but it's funny because the range gets lower. So I, t- I was like, damn, did they dropped the range again. Now, like now the low number is 200 something. Like it used to be in the four hundreds and he was like, oh yeah, they lowered the range a little bit. Now it's, you know, 200 to 800. And I was like, so basically as America gets more unhealthy, you're just like taking that average and saying, that's what we need to be. Like, that doesn't make sense. Like you should take an average based on like human health <laughs> not average of of america society which is it's just horrible yeah i i actually now that you said that I, I did see that and i was confused but i probably only get my blood work done every couple of years um so yeah that would not be good um but i did i did want to put my fat biopsy on the record so mm. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna tell a fat biopsy story and then good. i'm gonna say that if you are ever asked to get one, you should just do it um, because it's an experience. So I had a fat biopsy when I was probably 10 pounds over stage weight, like coming out of my competition season. Um, And it was for uh, one of the studies that we were doing and they were training people on how to do it, right? So it was like a like a PA or a nurse practitioner or somebody like well-vetted was doing it. And 
had the, the MD right there. And so they're like, they, they take this needle that's, oh, it's not even a needle. It's like a pencil. And they're, they shove it into your stomach, right? Like right around your belly button where the fat is. And that's like, at that time, the only place I'd put fat back on really that they could get to. Um, but they're pulling suction through a tube. So it's like liposuction, right? So they stick a big ass needle in you and pulling suction through. And then they, it's like a metal toothbrush. They like scrub your fat. It was ridiculous. And it didn't hurt. Like you're numb. Like they shoot you up a lot of stuff and they're pulling, they're, they're pulling fat. And then like, I'm like, okay, this is super weird. Cause it feels like someone's rubbing the inside of my abs with like a metal device on the inside of my skin. And so that's what they're doing. So they get the fat and I'm like, okay, we're good. We're good. I'm not, like, I'm fine. Like, I'm fine. So I get up and I'm, my wife's there. Um, and so I, I get, I walk out of the room, like, no, I'm good. All right, cool, cool. And then I just black out just to the floor. <laughs> and my wife is standing there and she's looking at me. She's like, oh my God, what happened? And so they get like, they put me, you know, on my back and flip me over, put some ice on my stuff. And, and I'm like, no, I'm fine. My body's just freaking out. I can't stop that part. Um, but she's like, you're never, ever doing another experiment again. Sorry. Dude, needles are not, they're not, I, I, I did the same thing, uh, uh, but it was in the delivery room when I saw oh. the epidural needle. Massive. And the doctor says, dad, don't look. And I was like, okay, what do you do? You look right at it because you want to <laughs> yeah. see what he doesn't want you to look at. And I literally just go, oh, just <laughs> fainted. Felt so bad because it's like her moment and the nurses are like running over to me with apple juice trying to get me to wake up. And it was a whole deal. But um, speaking of yeah. biopsies, it actually brought up a question because I was talking, um, I think I was actually talking to my wife about this because I was like, oh, I want to I want to be a part of an experiment. And she's like, why? And I was like, I don't know. I just want them to like do a muscle biopsy in me or something. She's like, well, what are they going to find in you that they can't figure out in somebody else? Why would you want to put yourself through that? And uh, one of my reasonings was I was like, well, I'm interested like what fiber dominance I am. And my question is, is, is like that something that is even possible like obviously it's hard to get a muscle biopsy but like if i went and got a muscle biopsy and they were like you are more fast twitch and i could change my training to cater to that is that even i think we've talked a little bit about fiber uh, muscle fiber typing but um it's a very interesting topic to me is that is that something because i know a lot of research shows you should pretty much split it evenly like you should do a lot of both but there are people who are dominant in one fiber type yeah, so you can do that. I've actually done that on people. Um, as you can take a biopsy, the, the, there's a couple problems with it. One, so you only take like, uh, like the size of your thumb, size of muscle. So you don't you don't know if that's necessarily representative of your whole like leg. Mm. Um, two, most people when they start training, everyone pretty much switches from type 2x to type 2a so that's like a, a standard training transition uh and then type 1 is kind of the the slowest so type 1a type 2a type 1 type 2a and type 2x so everybody goes towards type 2a with training now yeah i don't think you could really do anything in your training to switch your fiber type once you've since you've been training for so long to optimize anything uh, now there are people who like you pull a biopsy out of a runner 
and they're going to have all, especially someone who's been running for a long time, a whole lot of type one fibers. I'm talking like I've pulled biopsies with like 80% of their fibers are type mm. one. And usually it's like 40%. Um, so I, there's a, there's a genetic component, but there's also a training component too. So I don't know that like, once you got to your like ideal training style, cause you've been training for a long time that it, we would, you could do anything with that information, but it's super cool looking. So that, that runner, cause I think they did, they did a study on twins, right? Where like one was a marathoner and one wasn't, and they were different, but with that, that runner, that endurance person does, is there a benefit to them training in more of a type two fast twitch way? to stimulate muscle growth or is it like oh you're mainly type one like let's use that do more high rep bodybuilding like don't worry about explosive work don't worry about like low rep strength or anything like that yeah uh kind of so i mean if you're mostly type one and you're like more of an endurance person like you want to stay you know stay in that lane right so you don't really want to change mm-hmm. um if that's what you want to continue doing yeah yeah but there, and there's not a lot of data show like with the idea of Let's go mostly from type one to type two, A specifically, that switch is a much harder switch. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure. It would probably happen to some extent, maybe like five or 6%, but I don't know. I guess my Do, whole like skepticism or, or even like speculation, like you remember the saying, which is, it's not a very accurate saying, but uh, shock the muscle. <laughs> you remember yeah. People used to say shock the muscle. To me, I'm like, is this a scientific way to actually do that? Like you can kind of shock the system into growth, um, which we know, I think actually Greg Knuckles reviewed a study in mass about this and it was, they saw no difference in anybody who did that except the people who shifted from Olympic weightlifting to bodybuilding and those people had never done bodybuilding before. So it was like years of Olympic weightlifting and then all of a sudden bodybuilding and they saw this like huge spike in muscle growth for them compared to anybody else. Yeah, and that would make sense. I mean, if you even you could do that to a runner too, probably, right? Or a or endurance-based athlete. Um, yeah, there's just not a lot of muscle biopsy literature in like people we care about. Yeah. And I got to imagine it's like you said, it's hard if, if, you know, all the muscles are different, parts of the muscles are different. And then it, it, it always comes up to a guessing game. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, but. I, I wish, I wish you could pick like, you could, you could use one of those rep calculators and be like, you're X fast twitch dominant, but yeah, they just, they just don't have any scientific realm right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's trial and error for people listening. If, if you're like the only, the situation I could see where it'd be worth trying is if you are a small calf individual, then maybe do some like low rep, heavy, you know, explosive or something, uh, because you walk all day. So they're probably going to be more type one anyway. Um, but usually that's a genetic thing. People are born with small calves. They usually are stuck that way. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I don't even know. I have I have good casts, so I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, me too. I've, I I don't. It's funny. I told my coach, I was like, "Hey, just like, you know, I don't do any of the cap raises you put on there. Like, I just I have no interest in them. My caps are fine." He's like, "All right, well, we'll use that time for something else." And I was like, "Perfect." <laughs> just being honest. But good, man. I like that. I think that that wraps it up pretty well. Um, do you have anything else you want to throw out before we close this one off? No, I think that's it. I think this is just, these are just some cool studies to show you how you can do science. And, you know, if you, if listeners ever have any questions, you can always reach out to me and email me or, you know, DM me. 
Yep, absolutely. So guys, the, uh, the link for this blog is in the description of this podcast, um, as well as my Instagram and Brandon's. Make sure you follow him because he posts a lot of these in infographic form that makes it really easy. Um, and it's a good place to ask him questions. Uh, last but not least, you can also fill out the form that is in this podcast description to fill out a podcast question. Um, and that can be for research reviews too, if you want. So um, that's a wrap. We'll catch you guys next time. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.